I'm Nick Monfort, and uh, welcome to uh, the bonus uh, event. In the uh, you've managed to unlock it through your attendance in the Purple Blurb series so far. Uh, in uh, is that a gamification? <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, Just wanted to know what world we were in. <laughs> In the, uh, in, in the Purple Blurb series, and uh, thanks to uh, literature section and the dean's office for supporting um, the event here tonight, I'm really pleased to have with us Al Phil Reese, who, um, although uh, in the strictest sense I wasn't a student of his at the University of Pennsylvania, I certainly was a great beneficiary of the learning environment that he has there, which is the Kelly Writers' And you were a House. student. Yes. You um, learned. In the, in, the, in the true sense, yes. In the true sense. Yes. Um, Al uh, was a founder and has been faculty director of the Kelly Writers House since its inception uh, there at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, I hope we'll have a good deal more discussion about what that institution is, what its place is at that campus, its uh, relevance to writing community and to teaching about poetry and writing. Um, here tonight, um, but I also want to mention that um, uh, Al, who's uh, uh, Paul Kelly, uh, professor of writing at Penn, is uh, founder of the uh, Penn Sound uh, archive of um, poetry readings, the largest uh, archive of poetry readings on the web that uh, makes its contents available for free uh, as MP3s. Um, he is publisher of Jacket 2. Um, Online literary magazine um, there at the uh, uh, at the University of Pennsylvania as well, and so he's been involved in um, a great number of um, innovations with technology and with writing. Um, what else should I say, Al? What That's good. I, I like to, that. Um, yeah, um, and uh, of course, um, it's because of our our. Uh, uh, fever about MOOCs that uh, that Al has the occasion to join us today because he's taught. When you a, say our, you mean nationally or MIT? Well, um, certainly at the institute. Um, I think there's. Uh, I think as the Today Show this morning, which which featured Al, uh, showed us. Uh, there's also national interest. There's popular interest. It's not something just at, um, uh, just within the academy or within the institute. Um, but a lot of us, with the involvement of uh, MITx. Um, a lot of us are wondering what can happen in terms of um, offering courses online to large numbers of people, making them open. And um, there's uh, many reasons, um, not just because uh, Al happens to teach in the humanities, uh, that I think his experience is particularly relevant to this. Um, so uh, I want us to have a, have a uh, broad conversation about this. but. One of the things I wanted to ask, you know, related, you, you may have noticed on the posters that were put up for this that there's this, this picture of a sort of tiny Al Phil Reese in the middle with all these students uh, surrounding and as other people. And, and it's, not, it's not just a, a giant talking head with a camera, um, but uh, there's, there's these other people um, who are around. Um, so I wanted to ask some about the place of the uh, writer's house um, in the course that Al's taken uh, uh, online, and um, and also ask him uh, about this this curious line that came across it. It uh, twittered across my Flickr feed, or or vice versa, one of those things um, uh, from Pinsound, uh, and I don't know the provenance of it, but it's 
it's, it may have something to do with Charles, with Charles Bernstein. It's, it's, it's the line, it takes a village to read a poem. Mm. Can great, you tell us some great, about, about... What a great yeah. question. Yeah. Uh, I think the assumption was back in the mid to late 90s when this started to happen and more recently when there's been this new push toward what we're now calling the MOOC and the development after edX and Udacity of Coursera with its, with its ambition, exiled from Stanford or self-exiled from Stanford with its ambition to really go a whole hog and get lots and lots of partners. Once that happened and the media started to pick it up, there was an assumption that I wanted to question the assumption was that as we moved into what might, in a silly way, be called 21st century technological, technologically supported delivery of mass education, we would at the same time implicitly go back to 19th century pedagogy. <laughs> or anyway, 20th century pedagogy, which is you know, the, the sage on a stage. And it seemed to me to be a mistake. I mean, I certainly didn't want to get involved in this project if it meant that I had to do something I have never done as a teacher, namely lecture. What an irony that would be if the newest, coolest tools drove me backwards, in my opinion, into a pedagogy I had abandoned because the material, as you were implying by that tweeted line that maybe comes from Charles Bernstein. Who knows, right? <laughs> it takes a village to read a poem. So it seems to me that it was important for me to raise my hand at that first meeting with the wonderful Coursera people. I hope I have an opportunity to sing the praises of the two founders of Coursera. I guess I'm taking that opportunity now. Uh, Daphne Kohler and Andrew Eng, both from computer science department at Stanford. And... Um, they're the ones who were teaching different courses, machine, machine learning on one hand and probabilistic modeling on the other for Daphne. And they're the ones who thought, this is really cool. Why don't we just teach this to everyone? And they opened it out. So uh, they came to Penn hoping that we would sign on, and there was a room full of engineers and a room full of med people. The STEM people were there. Isn't there a good, wouldn't there be good, shouldn't there be a good acronym for, for us, for the non-STEM? <laughs> well, Maybe non-STEM. STEAM. I put yeah. arts in there and it doesn't work <laughs> anymore. The science, technology, engineering, and medicine people were all in the room and there were four humanists. Likely uh, suspects, I think. How many of you are a likely suspect at your, at your institution? You're often brought to a meeting where they're thinking of doing some, and you feel either like a doggy in the window or like somebody said we have to have a humanist here. <laughs> uh, don't know what we're going to do with them, but we have to have one. And there were four of us. One was a classicist, uh, Joe Farrell, teaches late Latin and um, is a great guy and has done lots of experiments online in the 90s, a leader. He sat behind a pillar in, the old, in one of these old rooms at the University of Pennsylvania with his fingers in his ears because the siren song would attract him into something he knew was not going to work for him. Another was Peter DeSherney, 
whose specialty is intellectual property and copyright, he has since decided he literally can't teach one of these courses. Why? <laughs> Anybody want to guess? This is so great. Come on, you guys got to guess. Yes, because he couldn't get permission for the materials. Yeah. <laughs> I'm serious. So he can't, so yeah. Peter's out. He can't do it. Uh, the third was um, Peter Strzok. Also maybe, maybe that just gave him a better ability to make excuses. I think maybe. Uh, to get away he's, from actually chairing, <laughs> he's actually chairing our committee at Penn on the future of our offerings in this area. But he can't do it himself, one himself. Uh, the third person was Peter Strzok, who's a classicist also and teaches a big fannies and seats, 900-person dean, dean and provost salivating 900-person course or 400-person course on Greek and Roman mythology, which satisfies a basic requirement. And they figure he should be there because he can do this. And, and I. And so I raised my hand and I said to these splendid people, Daphne and Andrew, this doesn't work. This isn't ready for humanistic primetime, let alone art primetime. It's not going to work. And they said, why? And I said, because we don't, I don't lecture. I, I have to model an interpretive community if I want my students to go out and form that such a community. And that's not using community in this cliche way. So as you'll see in, as we have our discussion now in the next few minutes, and I'll show you some examples of it, you'll see that I really took that very seriously. The concept that I couldn't lecture because that implicitly and almost explicitly says, I know you don't, I have, you want, I am, you aren't, I talk, you listen, I, I, I am educated, you aren't yet, uh, I'm being filmed and you're watching, I'm being highlighted by the Today Show and you're not, etc. Or I will be highlighted by the Today Show and you're not. Uh, it, it felt to me the wrong thing to do and I searched around for an alternative. At that point, everyone who did this got a webcam. They even, Coursera will send you one. Like, here's the kit. <laughs> I'm serious. And they had a webcam and they talk. And at Princeton, a sociologist at Princeton who did it got a slightly better camera, but still, there he was, talking head. And brilliant lecturers, but I couldn't do that because my goal was to teach modern and contemporary American poetry on the avant-garde side. Open, inconclusive, ambiguous, difficult poems, which, whose open-endedness were ba the basic point of the course. Moreover, the whole point of the course was to suggest to people, many of whom had studied poetry but not for years, some of whom were teachers of poetry, but most of whom were just folks out there in the world, all over the world, 36,000 of them, who wanted to understand what we, you know, what's poetry all about beyond, uh, you know, and I took the road less traveled by, beyond that. And the point was that how you say what you say in a poem and elsewhere is as important as what you say that form is more important than content, or at least as, as, as important as content. You couldn't do that if the form were belying the point, the form of the lecture, the form of the pedagogy. Couldn't do it. So we decided to bring together the students. Now I'm going to show you two seconds of that, or five seconds of that, and then answer Nick's question about where I got those students. 
What do you think? So this is the ModPo homepage for Coursera, pretty modest. I'm able to control blog-like this stuff in the middle. Basic HTML, nothing fancy. I can, I can just uh, embed a YouTube video. I'll tell you about that later. Sell mugs. Um, and uh, you have the reading list. Everything is all there. I wrote this, you know, did this myself based on a course I've taught for years. And everything's there. The process was read a poem, watch a discussion, a video recorded discussion of myself teaching the poem with eight others, and then join the discussion forums and talk about it. Then read another, watch the video, go to another discussion forum, talk about it, and do that again and again and again with some other special things. So this is, this is basically what you saw, and, and there are links all over the place, links to the text of the poem, links to the audio of the poet reading the poem from Penn Sound, the archive that I'd set up, who knew it would come in so handy, and other things. Then you'd go over to the video discussions, and you would watch. So we'll just look at one. Should we look at... Let's look at the beats. Jack Kerouac. I conclude our discussion of power by talking about conforming to the rhythm of thought, which is not a paradox, but still. Notice we're all wearing Jack Kerouac. Jack is known as a novelist. A little silly, right? Um, Very much a beat writer. Um, spent a lot of time thinking about spontaneous prose in that paradox. So now I'm going to look at some I'll of play this until the camera comes around. Essentials of spontaneous prose in another document, which is a list called Belief and Technique for Modern Prose, List of Essentials. So let's just look at a few of these things. All right. So, Max, um, setup. Uh, when it comes to the sketching from memory of a definite image object, the object set before the line sketching, set in memory, where it becomes the sketching from memory of a definite image object. Do you have anything to say about how that might work? Uh, it's, it's a really interesting phrase, and there's a lot going on. Um, so you'll see yeah. Max forgot to wear black, so we put, <laughs> we put a beret on him. So more about that video in a minute, but... Same every time. Yeah. So... This was my approach. My approach was to do something that hadn't been done, although it's not. This isn't rocket science. Uh, we didn't rehearse. Some of the students were my students in a course upon which this is modeled, but others were not. Others and the, and the students in my class were citizens of, denizens of, de facto residents of the Kelly Writers House, which pulled Nick out of the engineering school as often as it could during any given week while he was at the University of Pennsylvania. Come on, Nick. Come over and tell us about digital writing. Tell us about electronic literature. Um, soon, this guy became essentially a teacher and, a, and a, a partner and a peer and a collaborator. And the undergraduates were a classless literary and academic society, no joke. Happy to elaborate on what I mean by that. In that <laughs> undergraduates and graduate students and faculty and neighbors and alumni and others, Philadelphians and, and, and people coming from New York and Washington and elsewhere, uh, there's no card swipe at the door. It's an open facility. It doesn't look like a classroom. 
You know, back in the 60s when we said the way we were going to fix classrooms was to get beanbag chairs? Well, what we did is we took, we took an 1851 cottage, and we didn't actually put beanbag chairs in it, but we used the beanbag chair revolution idea, and we, we outfitted the place so it didn't look like a classroom at all. And it's really like an incubator or a sandbox or a skunk works, literary skunk works. Um, and these people started to flow in, including Nick and others. And so I picked from, I picked eight from among the denizens of the Kelly Writers House, some of whom didn't really know any of this material. And we went and we, we filmed this. We didn't use the um, Coursera kit uh, webcam. We actually got, this is being um, filmed by a woman who is a um, nightly, a evening, local evening news um, uh, handheld camera on a strap person, the kind of person who goes right up to the victim of a fire and set, you know, with the shaking and the, you know, right there in the street. And I don't know if you can tell from this, but you, if you look at more of these, you can. She was right there on us with three people doing audio. We did all the editing of audio. We edited, we didn't edit the discussion at all, ever. So we did 83 videos between 12 minutes and 26 minutes in length. And we did what the Coursera people called chunk. We chunked the material. But for me, it's one poem per video. Read a poem, watch the video, discuss it in a forum marked for that poem. Then go back, read another poem, watch a video, and discuss. So this modeled the discussion that I wanted the ModPo students to do. And they did. So it came out of the writer's house. And we shamelessly and also proudly told the ModPo community that we were coming from the writer's house. Not There's a tech closet built at Princeton and another one built at Penn where you would go in and film your course. World Music was filmed in a tech closet. I insisted that we do this at the writer's house. You can see the, you can see the architecture. You can see the old fireplace. And when we did our weekly live synchronous webcast sessions, either at 10 AM or 10 PM, and hundreds and sometimes thousands of people watched live and interacted with us. We also did it in the writer's house to create a kind of hunger for the writer's house on the part of some number of 36, some percentage of 36,000 people. What's the purpose of that? Well, I'm not sure I can answer that, except that we have a member of the ModPo community here, Chris Creason, who drove up from Hartford to meet me because how else would he meet me? <clears throat> And he was a member of the class and has never been to the writer's house. So, <clears throat> and just met me. So nothing up our sleeves, Chris. <clears throat> but you're an attorney. You're busy. You took Mod Poe. The first question I wanted to ask you is, did the, I, create, I tried to create intimacy in a form, the MOOC, that is famous, infamous for being impersonal. That's the one thing you read in the stupid editorials about it, right? Yeah, but it can never create the... Per so here's your chance to say something about how it's... What did you feel about the writer's house? And did you, is intimacy possible? Definitely. You've got a mic now. Here you go. <laughs> I mean, I know Max, Molly, Anna, that's you. You know them all. Oh, yeah. Um, Tell I, us about Max. What's his story? <laughs> I, I, he's an undergraduate, right? 
know, he's recently graduated, but what's his approach? What's his style? Do you, you know, I feel like I can imitate him. I couldn't define yeah. his, his approach. <laughs> he's the um, guy I went to at the beginning of every discussion because he's unflappable. He takes a slight pause, and then he gives a sonorous answer. And then you made him take your place and, and lead the discussion. You remember that? One time yeah. I just said, okay, without telling him, Max, take over. Gertrude Stein, because I couldn't teach it, so I asked him to do it. Um, well, if your question is, did it feel personal, it, it really felt personal. And I, I feel like if you move the camera further to the right, you'll see me, though. Obviously, I was never there. And um, I mean, I, in college and in law school, I took large lecture classes just like this. And now that I'm watching these videos, the, the th I'm wondering if you feel like you're just watching the video, because I never felt like that. I felt like I was participating, and, and the chunks worked really well. The 12-minute chunk, I mean, I ended up buying one of those mugs. Did you really? And, oh, yeah. And, and so I spent my morning having breakfast with my mug, usually right next to Max, it felt like. And... Um, even though I obviously couldn't say anything, I, I felt like I was in the room with you guys. And I, I feel like I know you, even though we've never communicated except for today and a little bit right before you started talking. So um, it felt very intimate to me. Thank you. So what we want to do now is ask you what you want to know, what, you, what is it about the MOOC or the humanities subject matter MOOC that you need to know how can I help those of you who are trying to think your way through this, either as educators or administrators or prospective students? What is it that, what are, and there must be some myths out there about it. So, and also I'm within limits willing to tell you what it took to get, to get the thing made in terms of institutional politics, in terms of funding, et cetera. Um, can you talk a little bit, oh, sorry. Could you talk a little bit about the rest of the MOOC, I mean, you've talked about making the videos. How do people participate? How is their work assessed? Uh, what's the, you say there are 36,000 participants. Did they all finish the course? Just the basic information. Sure. Thank you for asking. So the syllabus is the, is the place to go. Uh, then the idea is to go to the videos and then the discussion forums. The discussion forums are just simple threaded discussions. At the top, you get forums, which are called subforums here, misleadingly. And below that, the most recent forums. Right? Now, the course has ended. It ended on November 19th. And the students clamored for, make, for having access to the site and the discussion forums further. So I, left it, I said that I would leave it open for a year. So the course is done, and yet the latest contributions were two hours ago, three hours ago, three hours ago, four. People are still in there. I've more or less abandoned it to them, although I really haven't. I'm, I go in there once a day just to look and answer questions and so forth. So the discussion forum is the place to go. And on one hand, if you just want to see who wrote most recently, you just go under latest forum activity. But if you want to go to see a particular set of subject matters, you go to discussion of previous chapters. We've moved these around. And there's week two, chapter one, on the Whitmanians and Dickinsonians. And each poem has its own discussion forum. 
a subform. So Williams Smell, William Carlos Williams Smell. You can see that this one, some Marilyn Haight, who was really a resistor. Oh, she didn't like modern poetry. Um, but became one of our best students from out in the West Coast. She wrote a thread called Smell, a metaphor for choosing topics about which to write poems. Not bad, actually. Uh, 82, 62 people voted it up, or uh, there are 62 more upvotes than downvotes, I should say. Uh, 40 people posted to that, and, and 1,700 people read it. That's pretty, pretty, pretty robust discussion. So does the, for me, the discussion forums were the key. And my predecessors in the MOOC biz, and probably my successors too, will, won't go in there if their life depended on it. It's a crazy place. The forums are crazy. And I, my, and, I, and I didn't hire one TA. I hired, I mean, there are eight in the videos and three more in addition, including a lead TA who's an assistant professor at Bard College, uh, one of their extension campuses in California. She's an assistant professor. She's the lead TA. So there were about 12 or 13 of us, including my own IT guy. And we went in there every day, as Chris knows. And we commented on questions and problems, and I suggested topics. And just by, especially when things are getting out of control, there was one um, troll in all of Modpo, one troll. And I would, and I, I'm against kicking anyone out, so I followed the troll around, basically. And I would go in if things were getting out of hand, or just plain old discussion, like Gertrude Stein is meaningless. No, Gertrude Stein is my favorite poet. How can you say that? Well, she's meaningless. I don't understand it. Make me understand it. Why should I make you understand it? Didn't Professor Filreis tell you that it, you should be open to the possibility? Well, who are you to tell me I'm a, you know accomplished executive at such and such a company? And, and I would go in and say, they're there, everybody. Why don't we? And I would manage the discussion or that my TA. So the discussion forms are crucial to the success of this. And I have a feeling that there's probably three or four elements that created in Chris and others a sense of community and intimacy. The live webcasts were another. So the discussion forums are crucial, and we treated them, even though there are that many people, we treated them as a vital part of it. We were not going to cede that to the populace. Um, and then another element, and then I'll answer your question about numbers, the, another element are the live webcasts. We would actually convene at the writer's house at a certain time and place, or we know the place, writer's house, a certain time, and we would be there at a table, and we would take telephone calls on one plain old telephone service line, one POTS line. I'd call, put out the number, 215-573-9752. They would call. We had people who would travel to Philadelphia to be in the room, but mostly people were watching live, and then others would watch on recording. Um, and that, it turns out, well, did you watch the last, very last one? Um, I don't know if I can show it because I'll cry, but um, I'll, I'll show you one of them. Um, I certainly want to tell the story of that last webcast, but maybe I'll save, save it for later. Um, this is, well, this was the last one, but I'll show you the beginning of it. This was a Google Hangout. Now, Chris, you need to stand in front of the camera so that, uh, so I have the honor to read them. Uh, he, uh, he has a comment and a question. The final word is, 
thought I would be involved in supporting. That's our IT guy. Okay. So that that backroom discussion is our discussion. Then we go forward from that, having made our own decisions about what we consider to be valuable, and we share it, we teach it, we grow up to teach it, and then you wind up teaching the pedagogy, which is to say the pedagogy is about how we all gathered together and found the truth so in the it, room, it, which is that you know, people walked over this and they had this to say about this. This was presented, but it wasn't much appreciated, and so on and so forth. So you can see that so the people in the room were my TAs again, whom Chris came to like. Julia Block, the Bard assistant professor, is in a, in a window. She was watching the Twitter feed and the discussion forums for questions. And this was the room in the writer's house that people felt free to come to because we'd created this community that Nick cut his teeth on. So you can see the people in the room. One of my students, Barbara Spitz, is an accomplished architect in Philadelphia. And I've known her, it turns out that I've known her for 50 years because we went to summer camp together. The guy sitting next to her, Kirk, uh, tried to get into academia at a bad time when there weren't jobs. Uh, he got in, he wasn't very happy with it. He wound up making a ton of money as a businessman. He's now retired. He lives in Massachusetts. He drove down because he wanted to chat with me about whether he should get back into writing poetry or maybe even get, a, get another degree and, and become a teacher. Uh, at this point, someone's calling in. Uh, people would call in from all over the world and because I'd been in the discussion forum so much most of the time I knew who they were I knew their names and where they were all I had to do was that do that once and everybody there was a a, a credence was created a credence was created that I was inv I was involved I didn't I didn't have to answer all the discussion forum questions I just had to answer one and people would see I was there, and they would behave like students. Okay, so those are the elements. Yes. Uh, so were there requirements? Did you hand out certificates to people at the end? I mean, is it is? I yes. mean, I can see you're creating a community here, and there's yeah. uh, a lot of activity, but is yeah. it like a formal move right. like other Right, it is. If I had my way, we wouldn't have done any of the credentialing. There would have been lots of work to do, but no grading or record. But I was persuaded by people who want to see this turn into something later to do it. So we had four essays to write. Chris, did you write all four? We had four essays to write. Three of them were close readings, difficult. The fourth was an, exper an experiment in writing. It was a mesostic. Was it a mesostic? No, it was a. Yeah, one. You had an option, right? You could do a mesostic based on John Cage and Jackson McClough, or you could do an experimental writing project which deformed language that was already out there. Which kind of stuff um, you would do? Well, not only me, but uh, Senator Dick Durbin. Also. And Dick Durbin, who's a student student in the class, 
who did 75% of the work. I'll talk about Dick Durbin in a second. So, um, so four, four essays, uh, 13 quizzes. The quizzes were, what can quizzes be? They had to be auto-graded. So I wrote 13 quizzes. Actually, Julia Block wrote most of them. I couldn't stand doing it. But we did, pretty, we did a pretty good job. I mean, if there's time and interest, we can look at one of them. We can all take it together. But um, I said to the Coursera folks, we'll do quizzes fine. But in order to achieve eligibility for the certificate in the quizzes, all you had to do was do all 13 and achieve higher than a 0.0, .0 on any of them, on each of them. And you could have 10 retries. And we extended the deadline for the entire course. So you can see I wanted to play. I wanted to be a good boy. I wanted to do the multiple choice thing or the choose the right answer thing. But every time you chose the right answer and submitted, or the wrong one, a complete explanation in, long pro, in a paragraph came up to explain what we had in mind by giving that option. Uh, some of them said, how silly. You just told me the answer. And I'd say, well, retake it again and do the answer. And it'll, it might stick if my STEM colleagues are right about learning. I'm not so sure. So quizzes, 13 quizzes. So in order to get the certificate, you had to write four essays and submit them through the special writing assignment module. You had to do at least four peer reviews of each of those four. After the submission deadline came, your job was to go back, and you were randomly assigned four colleagues, peers, and you wrote reviews of four at least each. So you had to do 16 peer reviews, four essays, 13 quizzes. And I also said you had to participate minimally, at least in the discussion forums. There was no way for me to, to police that. There will be next time. You, you um, didn't automatically grade them, Mazostic? No, none of the papers were automatically great. Oh, you were being funny, yeah. Just check with me about that for next yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, I will. You can probably write me a program that will automatically grade the mesostic. Uh, how did the peer reviews work? Uh, the system that is a standard, I don't know if this is true about edX or Udacity, but it, in Coursera, the system is that you go, if you want to write an essay, and very few people, we had 8,000 essays uh, for the first essay, 8,000 out of 36,000 wrote the essays. That is to say, most of the people in the course either forgot they'd signed up for it and never did anything, which is not that many, or watched the videos, maybe dipped into the discussion forums, read the poems. I mean, we had teachers and professors and scholars and colleagues in the science fields. They weren't going to write the papers. One thing, it, Dick it Durbin wrote the papers, but they weren't. <laughs> yeah, it seems like you get like maybe 30,000 of those people would be like academics interested in teaching MOOCs yes, and wanting right. to learn about them. <laughs> a lot of them were. A lot of them were. Uh, so they, they wrote, 8,000 of them wrote the first paper. Uh, and then once the deadline was done, they had to go back into the writing assignments module. And the first time a peer review was submitted, the essay and the review were copied to the discussion forums. That was our innovation. So that now everyone, thousands and thousands, including the teachers who wouldn't deign to write an essay, but now they were eligible to do peer reviews of their own because the discussion forum was now a place where someone's essay was being discussed as if it were part of the community of discussion. And that really helped 
because some people who would get four peer reviews then got 16 mm -hmm. more from colleagues who didn't write at great length, but who said, you know, I read, I read your essay on Dickinson, I read all four peer reviews, and I want to add my thought, just one thought, some wise person who knows the field added. And, and then I was able to do it, I and the TAs. So the peer review system worked in Modpo because we didn't use any grades at all for the essays. In order to qualify this for the certificate, you had to submit an essay through the system and do four peer reviews. Now, there were some people who skimped on their essays, but we typically found them because we were, we were looking around. And some, some people would report on them, I suppose you could say. I was disappointed that the person whose essay I evaluated didn't take it very seriously. And many times I went in and I wrote an email to that person and I posted to the discussion forum to say, you know, we did say you had to submit an essay and only, we weren't going to evaluate him, but you must agree with me that this can't possibly count. And there were three instances of plagiarism that we just called out and that person didn't get a certificate. Very few people took the certificate. It just happened recently and the system is very buggy and I'm not a fan of the certificate. But it's a 10-week non-credit course, and some people took a certificate. And others who didn't uh, begged me to send them a little note saying they were a good participant, and I was happy to do that. Just a little crazy when you think about it. Yes, sir. Could you, could you, could you say it into the microphone so that I guess we're podcast. getting a recording of this. Uh, yes, could we'll you just uh, elaborate more on the, the way you post the essays to the forum? Since yes. there are like 8,000 of them, how would you... Uh, Right, so we created a for, we created a subforum. We created a subforum called writing assignments. And the Coursera programmers set it up so that the essays and the first peer review would be copied automatically into the appropriate subforum. Now, they were overwhelmed. Those subforms were overwhelmed by thousands of essays. I wrote emails, as Chris remembers, to the entire class, emails, separate communication, <coughs> urging people to go into that forum, pick an essay whose title looked interesting, and write a little comment. And I think, finally, by the end of the course, the average uh, number of responses had gone up to eight or nine which I don't know how many you got. How many responses did you get typically? Always four. Always four, okay. So some, should it, we sh I think our minimum was five at some point. I don't know how you fell through the crack. I would go to the back of the queue and look at the essays that only had four or five responses because there was one, the essay itself counted as a response. And I would urge my TAs and my peers, in the, my, the students, to go in and take care of those that were at the back of the queue. But this was a voluntary thing. The very least, you would get four. And it did, it did threaten to overwhelm the forums for that week. But people got, there was some complaining, but they got used to it. And in the end, we did a survey, and people overwhelmingly said, we really like the idea that the essays are copied into the forum, because people are proud of their essays. And the traditional, the, the traditional, the standard mode in the MOOC is to have those hidden in another place. The only people who can see your essay are the people who are assigned to do the peer review of it. I asked Marjorie Perloff, who's, let's say, the preeminent critic, critic poetry critic, at least in the, kind of, in the world of the kind of poetry that we admire, to go in 
with some trepidation because she's very straightforward. And she went in and she read a handful of the essays on the Franco-Hara poem. And she pronounced them at the college level. Uh, they were very good, she said. She read six or seven of them and said, randomly and said, these are very good. I was very proud. I mean, I can't control who these people are, but they were very good. Yes, please. Yeah, I'm wondering, uh, uh, you're talking a lot about uh, the design of this whole project, and then you talk a lot about the maintenance, and we did this and we did that. Could you talk a little bit about, first of all, some of the background setting up of it, and then also the background maintenance of it, maintenance of it from week to week? Thanks. Uh, it, it was a huge amount of work, huge. Don't do it unless you're really willing to go way in it. Um, but I thought of it in a very different way. So I, you know, I had to plan. I had to allocate where I'm going to get the money to pay for all these people. I had to decide what the format was going to be. I had to bring, I had to bring over the syllabus that was going to work. I had to calculate the amount of hours because we didn't want, you know, the idea was about. Um, between two and three hours of videos a week. And I had to think about how long it was going to take to talk about this particular poem that I've been teaching in 50 minute and an hour and 20 minute chunks all of my teaching life. I had to rethink the pedagogy of it. Um, I had to build the site, which I did more or less on my own. I had to learn the damn site. And I'm not really that good at these things. Uh, I have a full-time IT guy who reports to me in my center so fortunately, I had something that most people don't have. I have a, a guy who basically was told, this is what you're going to be doing for now. Um, I hired a student to be the director of the videos, brought in all those technical people to make the videos. And I had to prepare like crazy to lead these things in a, semi, a seemingly spontaneous way and hope that it would work. And I don't know if Chris realizes this, or maybe I've already said this tonight, we didn't edit anything. It was first take, one take, every time, the entire month of filming. We filmed all of a week. Chris will know this because we're all wearing the same thing for an entire week in the course. We filmed a week and a day. Then we gave ourselves a couple of days off, came back, filmed another week and a day. So there were 10 or 11 filming sessions for 10 weeks of the course. At the very end of the course, of the filming, I had the students do an introductory video based on what we had just been through, but to create in Chris and his fellow students sense that these, these people had something to say that was going to really look over the entire course. But the fact is, we didn't know what the course was going to look like as we got into it at the beginning. I had to keep everybody's spirits up. I had to cancel dentist appointments you know, that, other, that my students had made because I wanted every one of them in the shot every week. And when Allie Castleman had to be away because of a family wedding, the students, so she's missing an entire week, which is one day of filming, the students started to get upset. Allie's always sitting to my right. She wasn't there that week. They were upset. <laughs> so, uh, and a word about the maintenance of the site. Um, it was, it's hell. But it's going to get better because we're, I'm flying out to Palo Alto with Julia, my lead TA, and my IT guy, Chris. 
and we're going to spend an entire day with them with big list of things that we think should be fixed, many of which they're already working on because other teachers have told them. The discussion forums need a lot of work. The, the, the search function isn't very sophisticated. They made their own. They didn't, they didn't bring in a third party system. They made their own and they're very proud engineers, programmers, but it's, it wasn't quite ready. Uh, and we struggled with it. The, we were the first ones to use the peer review system without glitches. There was one glitch. I was and I was very on top of it. You know, Saturday night, everything switches over. I push the buttons myself to put out the new videos. We didn't put the videos out for the whole course. We put them, we put them out one week at a time so that Chris and, and his fellow students felt like we had just recorded them the day before. And they were, and there's a story that's being told in the Today Show clip this morning, you see me saying something like, um, uh, it's a I regret using this phrase, but it's a little like reality TV. The students need to come back because they want to find out what happens to us. Not who gets kicked off the set, but, but you know, how is Max going to do in the beat with the beats? He doesn't seem like a beat kind of guy, so he put on the beret and he did the best he could. How is Max going to deal with that? And Emily, who sits way, way on my right, who is the brightest person at the table, but extremely shy and makes faces the entire time and is always the final word person, in the end, and, and hates all the experimental stuff, in the end came around and said the most movingly beautiful things about why we need experimental writers in our world. Just beautiful. And, they, and people had to stick 10 weeks in order to find that out. So lots of maintenance, lots of prep, holy cow. I had a question. You used the word spontaneity. And as a teacher, we make spontaneous connections all the time, especially with poetry and literature. Yes. I wondered if you felt different because you knew you were on camera and whether or whether the camera disappeared after a few weeks or a few sessions. And what the students, did you canvass them afterwards? Did they feel the way students often do once they establish a sense of camaraderie in the class? Or was the camera always present in your mind? For the eight students who were being filmed? Yeah. Uh, I was astonished at how quickly they forgot. The first okay. week isn't quite as good because Anna keeps looking at the camera and people are checking to see. But let me give you a, a quick well, sense also, of... Also, I mean, it's not that people at the Writer's House are, any, uh, uh, are unfamiliar with media production or participating in that no, because no, there's a... Um, students worry, for example, about saying something stupid, particularly when dealing with poetry, at least in yeah. my experience. No, no, well, I, I understand the point, but so, I'm just, I, the thing I wanted to mention is that right, there's a radio program live at the Writer's House that is, uh -huh. that's filmed oh, I see what you're at saying. the Writer's House. Yeah. There's the Center for Programs and Contemporary Writing. It, uh, every, every program we have at the Writer's House is webcast live. Oh, I see, but, so they're used to it. But, but these, these kids are just, I mean, your MIT students are the same, they're just completely remarkable. They, once they get into an intellectual problem, they forget that anybody is watching. Right. And did you feel a different sense, uh, any kind of constraint that you might not feel in a non-MOOC classroom? Yes. Uh, well, I, I didn't say fuck very often. Right. I always <laughs> say that when I teach in a classroom yeah. live. I'm not sure. That's, that's not a very good answer to your question. You but I, worry, I felt a little constrained. I'm going to fight to have us leave that in the podcast. <laughs> I felt a little constrained by time. But I'm always constrained in the classroom. But I, you know what? I think it was the same. Okay. Let me give you a, just give you a look at the first couple of minutes of the surprise when I had two brief 
ask Max to. He didn't hesitate, and he had no idea he was going to do it. I told the camera person, but I didn't tell anybody else. Now watch what happens to the others. Watch what happens to the other students. They come alive. Anna was already twirling her hair while I was introducing yet another video. Simple pedagogical trick, but do, do they look like they're looking at the camera? They are now scared shitless. Oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. It was a delight. I loved every minute of this. And I am, such a, I am so much of a better teacher now. I'm 57 years old, and I've been teaching for almost 30 years. Uh, a little bit at the University of Virginia and the rest of the time at Penn. And I have never felt so alive as a teacher than having done this. Chris and his friends most of whom I haven't met, to be sure, have changed me. I, just, I'm so, I, taught, I taught the face-to-face -face version of this same course this semester. And I was great at it because of Modpo. Please. Just a tiny question. Um, what determines the varying lengths of the of the videos? I see nine minutes, twenty-one minutes. Yeah. You know. Yeah. How do you decide on that? Well, I did it in advance. I added up to a little more. You know, between about two and a half hours, and I decided, well, we're going to have to do we're going to have to do short shrift on this little Williams poem, and se also I had some uh, poems where we had poem talks. Uh, discussions available, and we had other kinds of external materials that were going to be helping me teach it. So I would say, well, you know, let's leave it to everybody to go here, and we can do this in 11 minutes. So for the most part, and Kristen, the director, would keep an, a clock saying, you got to wrap it up. And so it was very difficult. But I set it out in advance, and we sort of stuck to it. Sometimes we gained a few minutes because we seemed to get to a right moment at the end early, and then I would add on a few minutes later. Very much improvised, yeah. Are you thinking of doing one? Uh, like everybody in the room, probably. <laughs> okay, well, I'd love for us to reserve time for you to propose what you think you want to do so I can react as someone who's had experience. also want to make myself available to anyone who wants to try it. Um, and I'd love for Nick or someone here with authority to, as distinct from Nick or as including <laughs> Nick, to be able to tell me how MIT is going about taking proposals, how are you being funded, I'm very curious as to how that works. So, so you... Yes. No, <laughs> yes. no, I'm, but I'm... It would have to I, be someone who knows. <laughs> so we, we are being recorded, but I, I don't mind yeah. turning the record off and telling you behind the scenes at Penn how we pulled this thing off and what's going to happen the, the next time because we've got a lot of concerns about how we're going to... This is not... There's no money to be made, I can assure you. And so, you know, what's in, the, what's in it for the university? I, I mm. think I'd like to answer that question at some point, but go ahead. So you mentioned um, early on that you were initially resistant to the idea of uh, granting certificates. Um, yeah. And I wanted to ask what, 
um, if anything could be done, um, in your view, what it would be to make versions of this course um, gradable uh, for credit? Like, is that is that not is that on your horizon? Do you What's think it's Arthur? Arthur. Okay, Arthur. You said two very different things. You said gradable, and then you said credit bearing. Yeah, I know they're different credit. things, and I'm very interested good. in both. Okay, gradable. Well, actually, it would have to be credit that would get me under, you know, with a gun to my head to do grades. Um, and I'm not going to be pushed. I will not let that tail wag that particular dog. Uh, so I feel kind of strongly about this. Um, gradable, how am I going to, I mean, so, so Chris is a, uh, an attorney. He's got a JD, probably some other things. Um, he's an adult. He's wise. He's sensible, all these things. Um, there's a 17-year-old Indonesian whose English is not fluent. She's going to peer review him and then offer a grade. Okay, so if a grade were to be given, as it is in some other courses, even so-called humanities courses, humanities MOOCs, grades are given, uh, that means that I would have to write a rubric that would explain content. And I'd have to say what counts, yeah, what, what, what would count as appropriate content to be considered. Uh, and now the poem is, um, the poem is um, Emily Dickinson's The Brain Within Its Groove that they're writing about. The brain within its groove runs evenly and true, let, but let a splinter swerve to where easier for you to put a current back when floods have slipped the hills and scooped a turnpike for themselves. That poem is about Chris, what's that poem about? <laughs> that poem is about the way the brain works and how if you're in your groove, everything is even and true. True in the sense of a true, a true wheel, a true bicycle, a true train wheel. Uh, and the groove must be some vague notion of a railroad track. So I'm going down the tracks of my thought. But let a splinter swerve, my brain will go some other way. Where it would be easier for you to get the Army Corps of Engineers and put the flood back than it would be to stop the brain from thinking the way it thinks. Now, the whole point of that poem, Arthur, is um, that the brain will go where it's going to go, wherever it's going to go. And Emily, and in the poem, Emily lets the poem go off the rails metaphorically. She uses figures that go awry. It's a brilliant poem. She's brilliant. And I want to teach that poem in order to get people to realize that their brains will go wherever they're going to go. And I ask them to write an essay on that, and then I'm going to have a rubric that tells, that tells them what's right and what's wrong. <laughs> Not on your life. I ruined the whole idea of Modpo, which is that how you say what you say is more important than what you say. So the what has to be graded. Now, if I could figure out how to how, grade the how, then I would probably be hired by this institution and go over to the tech side. But I don't think it can be done. So grading is a problem. So certificates are fine for effort. But will that count at Northern Virginia Community College without anything or, or um, the University of California at San Diego, which wants to use my course, or Antioch University LA campus that wants to use my course for credit? Uh, will that count? Effort in 10 weeks, not 14? Answer is no. So I said to them, you can use the course as a spine, but you have to have people there 
to locally administer tests at, by your devising, and your faculties need to decide, either the faculty committee that gives credit, the curriculum committee, or the faculty senate needs to take out of my hands the idea whether this ModPo is really worth a credit if effort is the only thing, or if you want to issue a bunch of quizzes, or if you want to have them write an analysis that you decide can be good or bad, B minus or A minus, that's up to you, the different faculties of the different colleges and universities. So I'm playing hard to get on this. And ironically, there are only two courses that have been asked by other universities so far to, to take this, to take one of these courses and give credit, and mine is one of them. And I think it's because it's so darn good, and it's so communal, and it's so intimate, and it's so personal that um, that's, where they, that's why they want it for credit. But it, it's all those, Arthur, I'm serious about this, it's all those things, all those positives, because we, it's not graded. No, I, 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 I agree, and I'm very relieved to hear you say that. That's, 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 that does my heart good. Okay. Did you have a question there? Okay. I'm glad to hear that. Well, did I answer both parts? Yes, credit and grading. But don't, but, but mark my words, credit is coming. You know, we have to, we have to brace ourselves. Credit is coming. And um, I don't know whether I'll, I'll pull out of the game when it, when it does. I might. We'll see. Yes, uh, sir. Noel Jackson, literature. I uh, love the project. I think it's uh, fascinating work you. that you're doing. Um, curious about who took the class. Like what, and also, secondarily, what sort of demographic information Coursera collects about? They collect nothing. They collect nothing. They're beautiful people. They don't collect anything but an email address which you can fake, make a Gmail address on the spot, and you can put in a fake name. They take email address and name. Uh, you can put up a profile optionally. We did surveys. So all the info I have, and some of which I'll tell you now, are, are, are data that we collected. 52% um, are United States in ModPo. Uh, so 48% are from elsewhere, including many are non-Anglophone countries. This is for modern poetry, so that was pretty impressive. Uh, lots and lots, 120 countries? I mean, a lot of countries. Uh, we had a big concentration in Athens, Manila, London, Sydney, Melbourne, um, Canadians, of course, lots of Canadians, um, huge uh, Argentinians and Brazilians. Um, Malaysians, and we had a, a group in China. We had uh, uh, a woman in Syria who could not get access to the webcast recordings because we put them up on YouTube through Google Hangout, and her country blocked that. So she wrote to me personally and asked if there was any way we could bypass that, and I sent her an MP4 that we cut for her so that she could download it. I was really proud of that. There weren't a lot of Syrians, but she was one of them. Um, big Washington, D.C. contingent, as Chris will remember, because they kind of dominated. They were really terrific. There were study groups, actual live study groups, uh, weekly in Manila, London, Edinburgh, uh, Toronto, Washington, Boston, New York, Los Angeles. The L.A. people met at MOCA every Sunday. 
the DC people met in various locations, and the DC people eventually had two study groups. The Manila people were all teenagers, and they met at a coffee shop, and each week they took a picture of themselves, and the group grew and grew and grew, and I would post that picture to our Facebook group. The Facebook group had, has about 4,000 followers. The Twitter feed has about 5,000. Uh, these were all student-made, and I joined them all. Uh, and um, what else did you ask? Demographics. Um, more women than men, but not by a huge amount. A number of transgendered people. Uh, and lots and lots of people with significant handicaps. Um, people who were shut in, many people who were shut in, and people with um, various disorders that prevented them from having gone through schooling in the first place. Sarah Diaz from Cape Town has something, fibroneuralgia, I don't know what it is, but it means that um, she needs to take a lot of medications so that she's not constantly in pain. And the medications make her woozy and silly, and she's never really been able to complete school. So she took this course and one of its, was one of its stars. Uh, Helen from Chicago uh, lost her husband a couple of years ago and has multiple problems with her hands and her eyesight. And she, Harriet, sorry, not Helen, and Harriet called us so many times that we, I wound up putting one of my TAs on Harriet Watch and basically talk, talked her through how to use the technology. Um, she eventually wound up being one of the best students and called every time there was a webcast. She would call from Chicago. And I recently received you know, a big package of Hanukkah goodies from her. Um, Mr. Telionis from Athens. You remember the Mr. Telionis story? 81 years old, his doctor's heart disease so bad that he wasn't going to last very long. And he wanted to do this, and he convinced his children that he could do it. And he did, and he couldn't figure out the site, couldn't get the Dickinson paper in on time, so he emailed it to me with a big apology. You know, taking an email from a course of 36,000 people is something you don't want to encourage. Let's just put it that way. Mr. Telionis told me his story, asked me if I could post the essay to the, to the site on his behalf. I didn't tell the story of his illness, but I made it clear that he was unable to do this and he's not getting out of the apartment. I asked people to respond, and by that afternoon, 81 people responded to his essay. Now, that's not a lot, given 36,000, but Mr. Telionis got 81 people responding, including a bunch of young Athenians who were in the course who said, Mr. Telionis, tell us where you are, we'll come and visit, and we'll bring coffee. I wanted to tell them that maybe coffee was not what the doctor ordered, but... <laughs> And there were many stories like that, and, 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 and when we are about to wrap up, I'll tell you the story of Daniel, which is what Chris was wanting me to do a little bit before. But I felt one of the reasons why I'm having such a, I'm so revived as a teacher is that I felt that every one of these people, Sarah, to take an example in Cape Town, she's, a, she's working at University of Pennsylvania Quality. There is no threat to tuition structures, there's no threat that Sarah will come knocking on the door of Penn and saying, I deserve to be at Penn. She is just grateful that she got what she got free. I was grateful to teach her, grateful for my university to continue paying my salary to teach someone like Sarah. I feel like I have a friend in Sarah, though there's no doubt I will never meet her. I'm in touch with her. 
I feel like this is what I should be doing. She loves the poetry of Ron Silliman, who doesn't have that many readers really considering, and she's bought his big, the alphabet, she bought it, and now she's is reading it, and Ron is personally very happy, and now they're corresponding. I just think this is great. I can't imagine why we all shouldn't do this. I, I have a follow-up question that's actually a follow-up to yours, Arthur, which is, um, I mean, I was a student, but I'm also a father. My daughter's 14, and so she's looking at college, and I, I, I mean, I'm not sure. Are you all academics? Is that, so um, I know that when she <laughs> hits college, it's, I'm going to be paying a, probably a $60,000 a year tuition, and one of the things that excited me about the MOOC uh, format is how it might change education, and that might present a threat to you or it might present something that's exciting. So I'm, I'm curious to hear, you know, Al, what you think about it or what anybody else thinks and what college might look like for my daughter uh, when she's a freshman in a couple years. Someone take the mic because I'm dying to hear what you all think. Is there henny-pennyism at, at MIT about this? People worried the sky is going to fall? Arthur? The students are. The students, not the faculty? The students who are paying that Fifty-five thousand a year. Oh, they feel they're, that this is unfair. They're worried that the the specialness of their degree, but also the attention they get when you mention that you're spending time with Sarah and not with them. They get oh, very. Not, they get. I'm not. It's not my voice. I'm trying to share right. what I've heard at most of the committees I have to sit through where we talk about this. Um, the other thing is, I think a lot of the students feel. And some of the faculty do, too, here especially, that our students spend a lot of time in front of screens already. And this may be more specific to MIT, but it's really not that specific. It's generational, as you say. Um, whether what they need most in life from us is, in fact, more multimedia, more expertise of this sort, you're doing something extremely different from other MOOCs, and so it's a very exciting possibility. You asked about what some of us here are thinking about doing, just to throw that in yeah. there. I see ways we can make it a, a mutually useful for our students and, and others around the world if we make it part of the content, and it sounds like that's where you were going at the end, is you're making this poetry available and more comprehensible to people who otherwise wouldn't have access. But their stories also enrich the student experience where you are, and it's finding the right topics and material. So Pete over there and, and myself and Shankar, who had to leave, um, are working on something about global Shakespeare's. So I don't know all the local performance traditions of Malaysia, for example, but those are informing Shakespeare production now in KL in a way that I can gesture at, I can get a recording, but my students at MIT are going to be a lot better off if we have some folks in KL telling me about that tradition as we tell them about the 400 years of Shakespearean scholarship, that kind of thing. Nice. I hear in what you're saying the assumption that our face-to-face -face teaching is connected to the MOOC, which it doesn't need to be, and mine isn't. And MIT it does. And doesn't... Inherently? <laughs> the way we're talking about it right now in terms of both residence-based education needing um, attention and wanting to maintain its excellence, and also to deal with some of the, you know, the expectations across the university. This isn't a, our edX involvement is nonprofit and linked to MIT, whereas Coursera, as you know better, <laughs> and Udacity are independent 
for profits. So we've made a choice to try to integrate it in, amongst other things, in the service of MIT's educational program here, which is adding yet another wrinkle to the many you've mentioned. So are you saying literally that when, if you were to teach this Global Shakespeare's MOOC, which sounds like a great idea, simultaneously you'd be teaching it to MIT students, or you could set it up and teach it separately? Yeah. Oh, that's fine. Do that. Do that. It will feed back, and the materials we're developing will try to work for both audiences. I think that's great. And if you do that, and you're teaching your face-to-face -face students, there's nothing. You're there, and you you have office hours, and you are in touch with them, and there is no no change. The best, the change is that you're you've rethought your course, and there's new new some new materials that you've brought to bear on it, and and also your or in my case the energy that I've gotten because, you know, the wisdom of the crowd was able to teach me some stuff about a Dickinson poem I've been teaching for 30 years and hadn't rethought. So I don't see, I don't see a downside to that. The students... The only downside from my perspective is everyone I've talked to starts talking about Saturdays, including Saturday at midnight or Saturday morning answering email. Sure. And to be honest, I'm sitting here with some papers that I need to get right. back to in grade, and and the days don't get longer. Right. Yeah. That that that's so. In, I mean that then that was so that was my point when you said that the doing this doesn't need to affect your in class teaching. I don't see how it can't, in as much as there are still only 24 hours in the day, and 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 boundaries become hard to um, yeah. hard to know how to how to yeah. how to how to work and how to manage. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's something that you learned, that you learn over the process, over the course of doing it. Right. Let me just conclude, if you'll bear with me, and the people back there will, um, by telling you about what happened at the last of these webcasts. There was a young man named Daniel Bergman in the course all the way through. Um, and Daniel wrote comments which were much appreciated and voted up. And he wrote a first essay on Dickinson and it happened to be one of the few, one of the 30 or 40, that I myself commented on. And I said, this is a very good essay, Daniel. You know, I don't know who you are, where you are, how far along you are in your education, but I encourage you to keep going. This is, this is very good. Turn out that Daniel is so profoundly autistic that he, he, he's only learned how to communicate in the last year and a half. So he's one of these extraordinary autistic people who's stuck in the darkness and who needed to break out by, uh, through an iPad app that somebody, his dad built for him. And he could, without looking, he can slowly type what he wants to say. And then his dad would block copy it and put it into the discussion forums. And he was enrolled on his own with his parents' help. Um, and once I get, when I, and he'd never written anything more than a few sentences. He wrote an essay that I happened to appreciate. And it just drove him forward. Uh, fast forward to the end of the course. He, he visited at one, one of the live webcasts prior to the end. I met him there. I sat with him. And he couldn't stay in the room. It's too much stimulation, but he listened. And then he stayed around for my actual live face-to-face -face version of the same course that I was teaching that afternoon. And actually had something to say, typed out something that was quite profound that he had to say about John Ashbery. For the last webcast, he came, lots of people in the room, and there's Daniel with his parents. And he, he uh, had a final word to say. We went around, it was like two word poems, sort of a final word thing. 
And he typed out, not impossible, which, of course, everybody thought was a remarkable thing for him to say. And then he grabbed the mic and he spoke it. He said, not impossible, which, according to his dad, is the first phrase he's ever said. He's, he's breathed some words, but the first, he just summoned the effort of it. He recently, he recently wrote a short note. I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read part of it. He recently wrote a note to the Coursera people asking me to deliver it and, um, and said, I don't mind if you tell the world about this because I'm ready to be, he didn't say poster boy, but I'm ready for the autistic community to be recognized as people who can be students. So just let me read, by way of conclusion, some of this. Um, Please tell Coursera and Penn my story. I am a 17-year-old boy emerging from autism. I can't yet sit still in a classroom, so ModPo is my first real course ever. During the course, I had to keep pace with the class, which is unheard of in special ed. Now I know I can benefit from having to work hard and enjoy being in sync with the world. The Coursera format allowed me to say I was autistic in some essays and not others, so I could see what life is like with and without my handicap being visible. It took him three weeks to write this, by the way. I had never before written an essay. The students following your lead when I visited made me feel welcome, and I started to dream about a life in an academic setting where I might someday be of use to others, as so many people have been of use to me. The effect is that I feel dramatically less isolated. Your notion that digital learning need not be isolating, which is something I said at the very last webcast, is very right where I am concerned. Now the specifics of your course were no less transforming. My father asked me the other day whether ModPo had had an effect on my openness, and I was astonished to realize it had. And one last paragraph. My whole intellectual life, as I've started to emerge from the misty darkness of autism, has been an adventure in beauty housed in form and structure. My favorite curative activity was listening to my father read Shakespeare. His father decided to read him The Tempest. That was the first attempt to communicate with him when they discovered he could. And his father read him slowly The Tempest and tried to get him to answer questions about what was going on in the play. And that's what they did. Rather than read the stupid silly books that you're supposed to read, he decided to do The Tempest. And so um, Daniel knows The Tempest by heart. To my father read Shakespeare and asked me to describe the symbols, poetic devices, and structures which make the play work. So I came to Modpo comfortable with close reading. I can't believe that. I get my parents to take me to this to the Uffizi so I can study Botticelli. My music theory teacher shows me how Mozart is structured, so it is not surprising that until I took your class, I thought poetry was words stuffed into forms. Thank you, and please let me know how I can help and participate in what, on the whole, is one of the most exciting and worthwhile endeavors that I know about. So, you know, uh, people have asked me why I put all that extra time into it, and Daniel was sufficient. So, anyway, thank you. Thank you.